at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our December 4th, 2023 edition. It is Monday. I'm Justin Klein, and it is because it is Monday, we have Luke Guerrero back with us. How was your weekend, Luke? I know uh, the Eagles didn't fly. The Eagles did not fly. My fantasy football team's hopes were dashed in the final seconds of the Browns game. I would say, all in all, bad. Not a good football from a sports perspective. Yes. Otherwise, it was okay. great. Well, well, it was uh, a decent day in the market, though. So that was a, that's a positive, and we're going to dig into that here in a little bit. But today is really about you. It's about your questions and your comments, and our job is to give you actionable advice and educational material so that, you, so that you can make better decisions with your money. This is a, an endeavor that requires consistency and discipline and keeping your eye on the ball. And that's what we're here to help you do. So we're going to provide a lot of useful data and our unbiased perspective developed with over 20 plus years of investment experience. Now, we're going to look at the market performance today run down some show topics, but as usual, we're going to hit on our first caller question now. Hi, I'm calling today about Expedia, ticker symbol EXPE. I'm up nicely. I've held it for less than a year. I'm wondering what you think about the company in this environment right now. Thank you very much. Bye. All right, looking at Expedia, EXPE. Obviously, their business fell apart during COVID. They lost $8.78 a share in 2020, but that was kind of a washed away type of year. And they've returned to pre-pandemic earnings numbers over $6 per share last year. This year, expected to make a total of about $8.55 a share and then $10.91 next year, Luke. But no dividend, a good amount of debt, and revenue growth is slowing, that's for sure. Uh, is this after this run? Does does it look uh, in line still with uh, the rest of the industry when it comes to valuations? Yeah, well, looking at its next twelve month price to earnings, it's valued at eleven point seven, which is well below its average of thirty, which is patently absurd that that's a five year average. But yeah. I think I think one thing you got to note with this company and and something that came out in the past couple of days is that forty percent of pandemic savings have been spent. And most of the concentrated wealth is, or rather most of the wealth is now concentrated kind of towards the upper end of the income spectrum, the people who you wouldn't really expect to use Expedia for their travel. So I think revenue stagnating makes sense to me. I think maybe over the next year, two years, you can see uh, that stagnation continue where revenues maybe even fall, maybe some revisions downward. Uh, if I were if I were the caller, I might be thinking about once you get past, I don't know how long he's hold it, but he's held it. But once you get past that long term capital gain, maybe start maybe start trimming a little bit. 
Yeah, you're you're definitely seeing uh, some deceleration in their business. Peak trailing 12 months free cash flow was in the first quarter of last year at nearly $4 billion. The current trailing 12 months free cash flow is only $1.9 billion, which is still higher than pre-pandemic levels, but uh, that trend is lower. And last quarter, revenues grew 9%. A year ago, revenues in the same quarter were growing 22% and 51% the quarter before that. So you see those the, the, that, that revenue growth certainly decelerating. Uh, I think they... Uh, I think it's a solid business overall. If you look at its profitability, return equity right now is 44%. The longer term kind of pre-pandemic level was somewhere in the low teens. So it's probably going to mean revert. Uh, But the technicals are fine for now. I have no issue with it. Uh, Like Luke said, I think you you think about trimming once you get to that full year mark. Uh, And you let me give you some resistance levels. Definitely around the 150 mark. We're at one, basically 140 right now. And then the big major resistance is going to be up around 165. So I think those would be price targets because the technicals near term are fine. Obviously, the market is holding together. This is a small cap name and small caps are, are getting, uh, well, I guess it'd be a mid cap, $19 billion market cap. But small caps, mid caps are certainly strengthening compared to the large caps. So I would hold it for now and look to be trimming around that 150 level as well as the 160 Five level. All right. Thanks for the call. Now we have a lot of cover over the next 40 minutes, and this is what we have planned. Our main focus point set up by this question. Will the SEC's data tagging plan ensnare companies next year? Now, in 2024, the SEC will use investigative tools powered by AI to better identify companies that are in violation. So we're going to talk about the SEC as well as artificial intelligence and how that feeds into potential SEC enforcement and how will impact corporate disclosures in business ethics because that's what uh, that's what is I think lost a lot in this uh, regulatory regime is what this is all about is business ethics and uh, we're going to dig into that topic. Also, we're going to touch on the treasury market and there are some rules coming down the pipe. And the big question is, will it break the market? What kind of problems is, is it going to create uh, potentially overall? And then lastly, or not lastly, we're going to look at goods deflation. We're gonna, we are seeing deflation in the goods department, as well as a new tie-up between Apple and Paramount, potentially, on bundling their streaming services. So we're going to look at that as well. Now, we also have some voice bank questions. One is in regards to Crown Castle, and the other is CrowdStrike. Now, let's take a look at the market performance today. Huge, huge underperformance in those large cap, especially the large cap growth here. Uh, Palantir down 9%. Or the big uh, Intel was down 3 Amazon down 1.5%. And Google was down. Uh, let's see. What else was down? There was some, some big names down, Luke. What, what, uh, what did you take away from kind of this uh, follow-through on this Monday? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. I think it was an interesting broadening of the rally. You know, the Russell 2000, which measures small caps, was up over 1%. The S&P 500 equal weight index was pretty in line. Um, another thing that was interesting to me is that there seemed to be a wholesale dismissal of of kind of the potential for escalating tensions in the Middle East with the U.S. 
uh, signaling that it may strike Houthi rebels who have been attacking uh, shipping shipping lanes in international waters. So that didn't seem to make a big market impact. I saw after the close today that uh, it's likely based on satellite footage that Israel is starting its ground invasion of southern Gaza. So that'll be an interesting thing to see and how that affects markets tomorrow as you see this, this widening of tensions and the possibility and the ramifications that could have for the price of oil and, and markets in general. Yeah, I mean, oil was was down today. Uh, the dollar was up a little bit. Gold was down. You definitely had commodities kind of a, a across the board down. But that w- that's what made today even more interesting is how poor those large cap growth stocks did and how great the small caps. Small cap value was the op- up over 1%. Large cap growth at kind of tailwind from uh, the commodity side of the market. Industrials were up. Uh, nicely today and you're definitely getting a snapback in the small cap names names that oftentimes have difficulty uh difficulty raising capital borrowing money and the fact that interest rates have dropped uh, are certainly certainly giving them a tailwind i think there's some short covering going into year end as well you're seeing that and I, I really think this is the story nobody's talking about is the fact that uh, a lot of these the Mag Seven, shall we say, uh, they're rolling over. Google down to about two percent today. Uh, Nvidia was down uh, today as well, twelve dollars. Uh, so you definitely see kind of weakness uh, across that large cap growth space and a continued rotation out of growth and into value as we close the year. All right, moving into a short break. So let me tell you about the holiday giveaway contest. It offers a chance to receive a free autographed copy of Steve's book, Above Average Investing, for the Average Investor. It's a no-nonsense beginner's guide to the world of buying and selling equities and deals with the topics in an easy-to-read style. And to enter the contest, the rules are simple. Go and subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram, and like our holiday giveaway posts. You'll see there on Instagram and tag three friends as well. We'll choose one winner each day until December 31st. The phone lines are open waiting for your questions now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Foods, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99CHART. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. 
So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 888 99 Chart. Hey guys, Kyle from Texas. Just got to listen to y'all's podcast um, yesterday. I know you guys talked about not really chasing the uh, the stocks that are that were in the headlines. However, I have been in CrowdStrike for a little bit. CRWV. Just seeing uh, what you guys thought about doubling down on it. I think cybersecurity's uh, definitely going to be in the future for a while. Love the show. Appreciate it, guys. All right, looking at CrowdStrike, and this is definitely one of the largest cloud security stocks that is, are out there. You're talking about a market cap of $57 billion, clean balance sheet, so not much debt to, to really speak of. But, Luke, they are a serial issuer of shares, and they are profitable, but earnings, even next year, look forward-looking of $3.69 at a $237 price today, you're talking about, what, 75 times forward-looking earnings? That's a bit expensive uh, for my liking, as well as look at price-sales ratio at 20 times. And historically, paying 20x uh, times sales is usually a fool's errand. Is this an exception? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, looking at its price to book, it's 27 times its book value, which is very, very high, especially relative to its competitors. Its net margin last year was negative just slightly, though it's going to go positive 23%, allegedly, uh, in the next fiscal year. It doesn't have a lot of debt, which is good. We like that. Like you said, it's, it's the biggest player. But for me, if the question is, are you going to double down, I don't think now would be the right time just – Based on price action alone, I mean, this thing is in a this thing is looking for support at some at some point in time. So, right now, I would not double down. It's it's a good company. It has captured a lot of market share. I don't think it's going to do poorly. I don't think you should sell, but I don't necessarily think you should buy more right now. Yeah, I think you meant resistance. It's uh, it's certainly overbought, and it's it's pretty much at resistance right now, which are the highs from the spring of 2022. And the next resistance level is going to be upwards somewhere around the two, was that 270? 270 mark in that range. So, and right now it's at 237. So, uh, definitely not a time you want to be adding to it. I would just be having a probably a tight stop on this. This is not approached breaking the 100 day moving average pretty much since this, uh, this uptrend started in, uh, in March. And that's what I would use. As long as it stays above the 100-day moving average, technicals are fine. And I would hold it until then. Um, but long-term, this is not a, a place that you want to be adding at 20x sales. All right, we're going to a quick break. break. Please remember, you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck. 
because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART. Now, our focus point today, set up by this question, will the SEC's data tagging plan ensnare companies next year? Now, Luke, the artificial intelligence craze continues at a swift pace, and it looks like it's not just corporations that are trying to leverage artificial intelligence. It's also the SEC, and they instituted a new format for disclosures, 10Ks, 10Qs, 8Ks, etc., so that they can easily basically scan these disclosures using computers and put them into single documents that are both human-readable and machine-readable as well. Now, what this is allowing them to do is to do their job better, right? And what it looks like is the number of enforcement actions have doubled from 8 in 2021 to 19 in 2022, more than doubled. And it looks to be uh, 18 this year with obviously um, still the rest of the year to go, so more to come. So the question is, is this going to, as the title says, ensnarl more companies and get them in trouble that uh, maybe were thought they were in compliance? And will this actually make market safer or is this more, more of a nuisance? Yeah, from, from first glance, it doesn't appear to me that it would be more of a nuisance. It seems that they're not requiring any additional filings. Am I, am I correct in that? They're just changing the platform over which people have to file it? Exactly. And obviously they passed more rules uh, for disclosures. Sarbanes-Oxley was one, but uh, they're having more, uh, I believe, like uh, more disclosures for like climate disclosures, for example. Um, so there are more regulations that there, there have been more regulations that come down the pike to make the disclosure job a little bit harder, more extensive. Um, so, you know, maybe some of those are going to have true implications for markets and, and others not so much. You know, my big takeaway, though, here is I think this is huge and not in the fact that I think a bunch of companies are going to suddenly come out as frauds or anything like that. But what it does is it allows the SEC, which is a very important governing body, to keep our markets reputable. Right. There's a reason why the U.S. equity markets, capital markets, are the deepest, most liquid in the world. That not just U.S. citizens buy stocks here, but those from around the world. It's because of the laws that surround our our governance and the trust that the world has that, hey, when a company says earnings are X, revenues Y, we're projecting for the future uh, Z, then the rest of the world can say, okay, that is in the ballpark, right? It's not going to be far off. Otherwise, this company wouldn't be here. So that's my takeaway, Luke, of all this, is that this is going to strengthen the credibility of our markets. So let me ask you a question then. Let's juxtapose this with something you and I talked about last week, 
And that is a very important Supreme Court case that may change how the SEC is able to enforce in these circumstances, whether allowed to use in-house enforcement in a way that they have uh, in a big way, right? That's been 50% of their enforcement actions. So even if you have the ability to find these things and the court decides that you can't have that in-house enforcement or you have to at least modify it and that slows down the wheels of justice, what do you think the net effect of these two things would be? Well, obviously what, what you talked about with the, the change of, of enforcement jurisdiction, basically, that it will – that will certainly make the SEC's job harder. But this is going to make their job easier. So they kind of balance each other out in some effect. And if you can use these AI tools to not just make these disclosures machine-readable, but more human-readable as well, then if it does move to more of, of jurisdiction or courts where you, you have a, a jury uh, deciding these things, the jury will be able to better understand whether they're in compliance or not. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And I think the point I was trying to highlight is that in regulation, everything is always in flux and things are changing. The technology is changing for how they catch people that may be violating regulation. The speed at which they can adjudicate uh, those issues is going to be changing. A lot is changing. But I do agree with you. In this instance, this seems to be a change for the better. I agree. All right, let's go to Bill in California. He wants to talk about the economy. Yeah, so uh, I think we've all heard that we're starting into the largest transfer of wealth in human history. And I thought it was maybe a few trillion dollars. Well, it's not. It's possibly as much as a hundred trillion dollars. So economists that I've read have said well, we don't really know what this is going to mean. We know it's going to be really important. We know it's going to be huge. And I'd like to get your take on it. I, it seems obvious to me that there's going to be a lot of mortgages paid off. There's going to be a lot of well, debt paid off. There's going to be a lot more well, insurance. Well, Bill, let's, uh, we're, we're, we have to go to a quick break. Um, and after this break, I'm going to get to your question and what we think about this comment. All right, give us a call for the rest of you at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game 
in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, before the break, we were talking to Bill, and he wanted to discuss the transfer of wealth that's happening over the next few decades. And a lot of this is basically the boomer generation. Boomers have done a fantastic job in gathering assets. They're one of the wealthiest cohorts at, in the retirement age, I think, I think ever. Adjusted for inflation. And a lot of that is the fact that they were able to buy homes. Their home buying years, prime home buying years, were when prices were very low, rates were very high, uh, but they were able to, you know, buy homes that now sell for a million dollars for sometimes six figures or far, uh, five figures. Uh, and so that's a big part of it. And then obviously equities as well. Equities have had a big boom from the early 80s until uh, today. Um, so kind of the double whammy of asset prices just rising and rising, and they're going to be passing that on to the next of kin. And as that happens, you know, usually younger people, they spend more. They just do. They're healthier. They're more willing to go out of the house, jump on a plane, travel halfway across the world. They're a lot of times they are having children and trying to build their life and that creates economic activity. So, you know, what does that have? What impact does that have in the economy? I think it's just a shift in demand for certain types of products and services for the younger generation, the millennial generation that uh, I would say Luke and I are, are part of that. We are now, we are becoming the largest cohort as the, the older boomers start to die off. We're now the largest cohort and our generation, we tend to spend more on experiences as opposed to physical things. So that's my first takeaway of this is that will be the shift is more towards, I think, travel stocks, for example, uh, healthier living. Um, So companies that cater to uh, how millennials eat, consume uh, products, I think those are kind of my main takeaways. What about you, Luke? Yeah, I think it's an important question. I think the most important part of it, the most important aspect or effect on the economy for me is just a shift of assets. So you have baby boomers who a lot of them have paid off housing is going to shift to younger generations that likely already have housing. And so that's going to open up a lot of the housing supply on the market over the next 20 years. And that's going to be shifted into things like innovative companies, into capital markets, into experiences, like you said. So that's from the economic impact perspective. But I also think there's a lot that's going to be going on in terms of government policy. Because what you're going to have after the largest transfer of wealth is probably the most wide inequality gap in the history of this country as well. Well, you already have that to a degree. This is the largest since the Gilded Age. No, certainly. But I think it's probably only going to get wider because you're going to have generational wealth transfers that are going to disproportionately affect certain certain groups within the next generation that is probably going to have a large impact on 
government policy, uh, priorities of younger generations, maybe an increased rise of populism beyond of what we see now. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, big, it's a big thing that is happening over the next two decades, and it's going to have some pretty wide effects. Yeah, I, I think it's really going to be, I think the housing market will have, it will, there will be an impact there. Uh, because as you said, a lot of those people have homes that are uh, paid off. I think millennials are a lot more focused on that quality of life and they're probably going to sell most of those homes. Whereas, you know, my parents' generation, when their, their parents passed, a lot of them wanted to hold on to the home, especially if it was only one or two siblings. My family had four, so they actually sold them off. But I know that multiple wanted to live in them. Um, me, I, I don't want to live in my mom's home when she passes, right? So uh, I, I absolutely will sell it. So, you know, I think that is going to have, I, I don't think housing is going to be an amazing place to have money over the next 10 to 20 years. Partially interest rates and partially is that demographic uh, situation. Uh, and I think of physical goods. We don't want physical goods. I remember my grandmother passed. My family went to her house and they were digging through everything. They wanted all the stuff, right? They asked me what I wanted. I wanted one gold necklace, probably worth 150 bucks, 200 bucks that she wore all the time. And I didn't want anything else. And that's just our generation. So... Uh, I certainly think that there will be large impacts and it's going to be more about money moving towards experiences and housing market will suffer. All right. Now let's touch a bit on the treasury market. It's a very important market. It is the deepest, most liquid market in the world. And it is the yield that anybody in finance uses when they're looking at what is considered the risk-free rate, which has an impact on basically all asset prices. And yields are starting to become more volatile. And the market liquidity within the treasury market is becoming thinner. And regulators are worried about this. We had the, fa the flash crash in 2014. We had the repo spike, repo madness in 2019. And those both raised alarm bells. And then obviously as of late, you saw the gilt markets overseas in the UK kind of blow up late last year. Same with uh, the JGB market. Uh, and during the recent banking crisis here in the US, you had treasury problems in the treasury market uh, as well. So what you're seeing is regulators are trying to solve this lack of liquidity that's kind of, it's not consistent, but it's certainly perking up in certain instances. So, Luke, is this a problem of the complexity of the trading within the treasury market? Or is it simply, there's just too much debt out there and not enough balance sheet to hold it all? Why not both? I think Why that, I think specifically, listen, when I, back in my mutual fund days, I remember when the repo crisis happened or rather the, the repo heart attack, if you will. I remember our fixed income desk and the guy that managed our, our internal money market fund would, was sweating for some time when that happened. So that's just to say that this is, this is a really important market. And there are some things just by how complex it's gotten that do need to be fixed. And, and one of the things that they mentioned is, which I, very much agree with is having a central clearinghouse. 
So if any time you can, for minimal cost, reduce counterparty risk, you do it. I don't think anyone's against that part of it. Um, there are other things in here that maybe are not a good idea because they would minimize the amount of participants in an incredibly liquid market. So I think any time that you propose a new rule, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. You have to, like they're doing, get input from the industry. That's, I think, where the phase where it is right now. But you don't ever want to come into a situation where you make the most important market in the world less liquid. So what are your thoughts on the basis trade? So for everyone out there, the basis trade is basically an arbitrage between the cash and the futures market for treasuries. And hedge funds are taking advantage of this in a big way because there's no default risk here, obviously. Uh, but what they do is they sometimes lever themselves up 50 to 1. And because the, the, the arbitrage is very small. So to earn a requisite level of return, you need, you need leverage of some kind. And when there's times of market stress, you could see prices of futures kind of swing wildly. And that can prompt these speculators that are doing these, this arbitrage act activity to unwind their positions in a rapid rate, create instability within the treasury market. I personally think leverage is typically a, a, a recipe for disaster of some kind. And do we want to tempt fate and potentially have disaster within the treasury market? As you said, Luke, the most important market in the world. No, I think that's a good point. I think there has to be – you have to take into consideration the difference between individual risk and systemic risk. I don't know how much systematic risk there would be from a hedge well, fund. Well, nothing's more systemic than – Well, uh, I mean from an individual than, than hedge fund taking – Treasury market volatility that's un, 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 unnerving the market as a whole. From an individual hedge fund taking an absurd amount of leverage – in a basis trade, what risk does that carry to the overall market? I don't know the answer to that. I think that I tend to agree with Ken Griffin from Citadel, who, who pointed out that the basis trade reduces financing costs for the treasury. It so does, this, but at what cost is the question. At what cost? But, is, but, oh, but what we mentioned within the U.S. market, specifically the repo issue, or really even 2020, was it induced that much more because there was leverage? Or was it just the rapid flight of all participants causing the worst scenario? Yeah, that's certainly true, right? This, the basis trade wasn't something that caused the repo uh, spike. But could it be the catalyst for the next problem, right? You, yes, it, it, it's creating higher demand. And as Ken Griffin said, that lowers the cost of financing. But when you, you these aren't strong holders, right? If you get an unwind of in the market, then they're going to be the first to jump ship because they are levered. They have to sell at any price. And I don't think you want sellers selling at any price. Now, the good thing is like it's a liquid market. It's a very liquid market. But as the amount of debt rises out there, the amount of notional value that these hedge funds are trading is going to rise as well. And that could 
you know, create bigger issues. So uh, it's very interesting to to see how the treasury market is going to to, to evolve uh, as debt issuance uh, rises so dramatically. Um, I'm in the mind that I think they should put more regulation to ensure that the people that are acting within the treasury market are not at risk of a, a fast unwind that can unnerve the entire system. That's my take. All right. Now we're heading into the four deep into the fourth quarter. December is here and we're starting to see that resurgence of that market that we saw last year where you have harder assets, electrons beating bites in the sky, for example. Uh, that's the way I kind of look at it. And the question is, are you are is your portfolio aligned with these times? And if you need help understanding whether or not you're on the right path, whether your overall asset allocation makes sense for your goals and risk tolerance level in this particular market, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice parallel investing, which means you invest right alongside our clients. And we provide a free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting. So send us a message through investtalk.com. Just click on the portfolio review button on the top right of the page. Now let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Investlock Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier from Hawaii. Hello, this is Joseph all the way from Hawaii. Your show is wonderful. And I have the following question. Hawaiian Airlines, was it $6? Alaska announced that it was going to be bought or is buying Hawaiian Airlines and it's at 14 next day almost. So it's just technically rising because of the news. Do I buy the news? Should I buy it at 14 and hoping it will go up more? It's technical. It's the only thing that looks good. Fundamentals are horrible. Alaska Airlines is a little underpriced. I would like to have your opinion. Any one of you who are great, thank you for what you do, making me and the rest of us smarter every day that we listen to you. All the best. Appreciate that. Mahalo. And Today, there was some big news. Uh, Alaska Airlines is buying Hawaiian Airlines for $1.9 billion, a 270% premium to the close on Friday. And you're basically, is this, uh, was this, I didn't look, was this all cash or was this in stock? I think it's all cash, 18 per share. Uh, Yeah, cash, okay. 18 per share. Now it's at 14 so I think the question is that there's a discount here. And the discount has to do with potential risk of antitrust disapproval, right? Lack of, lack of approval here. Now, these are two smaller regional airlines, Alaska and Hawaiian. And so I think it certainly has a better chance than, say, United uh, merging with another large airline, but there is some, there are, there are some uh, potential challenges. And I think that's the discount that you're seeing. So that would be the play is saying, okay, the market's thinking there's a decent chance that this falls through. And then Hawaiian would probably go back all the way to the mid single digits level. They trade at $5 per share at the close 
on Friday. It's at 1422 today. So I don't know, Luke, do you think that this will actually go through? Well, the market doesn't seem to think so. So yeah. this is a pretty steep discount, 20, 20% discount to About 18. Yeah. yeah. To, to the, to the offer price. Um, that's telling me that as of right now, the market is concerned. Is that overblown? Maybe, but I mean, if you want to make an investment where you, the investment thesis is essentially this merger will go through, you're either going to be right or you're going to be wrong mm-hmm. and you're, you're capped at your gains and you have some pretty steep loss potential. So I personally yeah. wouldn't buy. Yeah, I agree here. Uh, this is too risky for my blood and the downside is much higher than the upside. The downside is this goes back to five bucks and maybe even lower, uh, basically because Hawaiian Airlines, can't as be the caller said, is not, yeah, it can't be bought and, and, and it's, uh, it's having major financial trouble itself in a time where travel is very high. So I don't really see the risk reward here. Uh, my bet would say it does get approved, but I just don't like the risk versus reward. Now we're heading into a short break, so hang on at 888 chart You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. Oh, hi, Justin. I'd like to know what is your opinion on plug power and fuel cell. Thank you. Bye. Ah, plug power. Uh, Luke and I were just discussing what three industries have destroyed the most capital. And I think we kind of agree, probably crypto's number one. Number two would probably be space travel. And I think... Fuel cells would be number three. Probably clear now. I think those are the clear top three. Uh, and so Plug Power is just a name that has always been overhyped. And just the technology in general has been overhyped. And so if you look at a monthly chart of Plug Power or Fuel Cell, any of them, they are they just continue to go down and down. The split what do you think the split adjusted price, Luke, is for Plug Power? Uh, from its peak in 2000. Today it's trading at $4.80. What do you think its split adjusted price is? I don't know, but I can tell you its net margin was negative 106.7% last year. Wow. That's hard to do. <laughs> That's, That's so hard. hard to do. It's very hard to do. Uh, its split adjusted price was four, sorry, $1,563. And now it's at $4.80. Uh I can't think of a, as I just said, I can only think of two industries that are worse to invest in. The non-Bitcoin crypto market and the uh, the space travel market. So absolutely would run, sprint, and if you have to run a marathon to get away from power, uh, plug power and fuel cell companies, do it. Because it's probably one of the worst places you could ever put your money. Think that was clear enough, Luke? Think I was... Was that too harsh? I hope so. Was I too harsh? I hope it was clear, but not harsh. Okay. There you go. All right. Let's touch a bit on deflation. Yeah, we're having deflation in parts of the economy. Luke, appliances, furniture, used cars, 
etc. But we still don't have headline deflation. Is that coming? Well, I think you always have situations where, or not always, but I think it's common to have situations where prices of cars, prices of homes, renting can decrease a little bit. But you don't want economy-wide deflation. It doesn't happen very often, but it's typically a sign of stagnant or deeply depressed economy because demand is just faltering. So that's not what you want. So what we've seen so far is, is, is pretty solid. You know, I think good good prices fell on average 1.9% a year from 1995 to 2020 because of globalization. That obviously shifted backwards with the supply chain issues and, and reshoring a lot of industries. But generally, the deflation we're seeing is, is good deflation. Good goods deflation. Yeah. Goods deflation, yeah. So, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a lot of sunk costs for manufacturing facilities all around the world. So, and then you have a shift, as we talked earlier about that caller, of shifted demand towards more experiential uh, spending and services. So, things like home rentals, car insurance, th- traveling, those continue to go up, and while durable goods orders, you know, continue to or durable goods prices come down, consumer. Spending rose 0.2% in October, adjusted for inflation. That was the weakest in May. Uh, So that's uh, another reason for this. So it it just shows you that dichotomy between those physical goods and the service side of the economy, which continues to uh, remain in an uptrend. Price of groceries are are, are higher, but motor vehicles and parts, they're down. Household goods and appliances, they're down. Recreational goods, Right. Everyone spent money on recreational goods during the pandemic, and guess what? They don't need to buy them anymore because they, you know, they have all the uh, travel gear and camping gear that they, that they want. Golf clubs. There you go. <laughs> um, so it, it's pretty interesting to see that. Walmart, the number of items with price cuts is up 50% over last year. So, yeah, there is there, there are signs of deflation in parts of the goods market, but I still think we're going to remain in an inflationary environment that's mainly on the service side of the economy. All right. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Carrero. That completes another Invest Talk program. We thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. And it's official. We have now surpassed the 57 million download mark since it all began thanks to you independent thinking shared success this is best talk good night invest talk is a trademark of kpp financial because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.